seems ironic to begin this season of Advent in which we sing and celebrate peace on earth and goodwill among men with a text like this one. Perhaps it will serve as a good reminder to us of the fact that Jesus, the work that Jesus came to do and did indeed accomplish in his life and death and resurrection from the dead, while certainly accomplished, has yet to take fully effect throughout the world. To Acts chapter 15, I invite you to turn your attention with me to a most remarkable passage in the Bible, and not exactly what the reader might have anticipated based on the flow of events in the text. We've seen plenty of conflict in the book of Acts, most of it directed against the church from without, and conflict that has risen uh, within the church over the question of circumcision and salvation. That conflict has been so wisely and diplomatically and lovingly resolved as we saw earlier in this chapter last week. But here is conflict in the church within the kingdom and that between two of its choicest soldiers and ministers that does not submit itself to resolution. What lessons must this striking, even shocking passage hold for us? We'll find out after first we pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask for the help that we need to receive these harder things in your word as well and to learn their lessons rightly. Father, we pray, therefore, that your spirit will be here and that it will be his voice that we hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 15, we'll pick up at verse 35, and then we'll read through the fifth verse of chapter 16. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you're sensitive to what we read last week, uh, as we read read this passage, you uh, find this very striking, that uh, the church, having just come to the conclusion that circumcision is not required for salvation... Uh, now Paul should turn around and have Timothy circumcised. What's going on? 
Well, this circumcision was not for salvation, of course, but it was part of Paul's philosophy of being all things to all men in order to save some. So circumcision, certainly not for salvation, but in this case, because it is simply wise for the mission they're going to engage in. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Are you shocked by this? Here's Paul, the apostle, and a man who is as close to an apostle as one could possibly get and not be one, Barnabas, I'd be apostle in the small a sense. Both of them heroes of the Christian faith, both examples of everything that is right and good and noble as the scripture measures these things. And what is more, fast friends. What could possibly weld men together like the things these two had been through? When the church doubted Paul's conversion, remember how Jerusalem thought Paul's conversion a ruse in order to trap them, Barnabas believed in Paul. When Antioch needed a gifted teacher, Barnabas went all the way to Tarsus to seek out and collect Paul and bring him back. And then just think of what they had undergone together on that first missionary journey, first through Cyprus, then Galatia, that we've considered over the past few weeks. Miles and miles together through hardships and victories, from being deified together, considered gods in one case to being stoned, Later that same day, from performing miracles together to proclaiming the gospel to the lost, from planting seed churches to watering those seedlings on their way back through that territory. They had been through thick and thin together. Men who do those sort of things together, we think, would not easily be parted. And yet here they go, in two different directions, after what Luke calls a sharp dispute between them. What could possibly divide men and heroic servants of God from one another like this? An argument we understand over whether or not to take Mark. John Mark, that is. Like Paul, he had two names, one Hebrew, John, the other Roman, Mark or Marcus, A dispute, I say, over whether or not to take Mark on the missionary journey they were planning. Mark had gone with them, you might remember, on the first journey, but had withdrawn from them, we are told, early on at Pamphylia. Exactly what motivated that departure, we're we're not told, but in Paul's mind, apparently, it amounted to abandonment. Now, when Paul recommends to Barnabas that they should strike out together and visit those churches that uh, they've planted after some time now of being in Antioch, Barnabas is agreeable as long as John Mark is allowed to accompany them. A fight breaks out 
between them. Probably some sharp words are exchanged. Neither budges. Barnabas is sure that it's better not to go with Paul than to cede to Paul's opinion about Mark's fitness for the work. And Paul is so unwilling to give John Mark another try that he will part with his best friend and colleague in ministry rather than give in to Barnabas on this matter. And that's exactly what they do. They go their own ways. (laughs) Really? Couldn't someone have come beside these two and facilitated some sort of agreement? Or at the very least, was there no one to say to these brothers, this, gentlemen, this can't be allowed to happen. The two of you need to go in that room, start with prayer, and stay there until you're agreed one way or the other about Mark. How can this be? Well, it is what it is. Dr. Luke does not tell us who's to blame. He gives us no explanations. He impugns no motives. He offers no defense for either of them. It is what it is. But it's not a dispute without its lessons for us. But before I get to its lessons, let me first let you in on one of its non-lessons, what this text is not meant to teach us. Oftentimes, this passage is used as an excuse for Christians to perpetuate petty disagreements between one another and to maintain grudges against one another and to keep at arm's length from one another. Because, well, if Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree, then we probably can't either. I say petty disagreements is what I'm talking about. Things like, Well, she hurt my feelings. Or, did you hear what he said about me? Or to me? I've been in Christian ministry long enough now to to know that Christians sometimes separate from one another over things that really boil down to pride and quickness to take offense and a readiness to put the worst possible construction on what the other one said or did. Combined with an eagerness, it seems, to maintain a record of wrongs. We're not pleased with Paul and Barnabas here, to be sure. But the matter here was a serious one of a different caliber. Mark's fitness for kingdom service. This was a question, it seems, of potential impact on the gospel, a question of the qualifications of a man to join in the work in which unity of heart and purpose was absolutely necessary. These were gospel pioneers going out to the frontier, and no man who wasn't on his mettle should be allowed to come and jeopardize the work. That seems to have been Paul's perspective on the matter anyway, if we may read between the lines. This is not merely a matter of personal offenses or hurt feelings or noses bent out of shape. One thing that helps to indicate, I think, the fact that it is uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, going there, uh, that, that this is that serious a matter, is that Paul and Barnabas, though they went their separate ways, did not 
apparently do what people often describe today as cutting off the other person. What happens today when one person hurts another person's feelings? Well, they cut them off, right? They stop talking to them, avoid passing them in the hallway, refuse their phone calls, all these sort of ugly and juvenile maneuvers. When Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways, they went their separate ways to expand the kingdom. Their circles of friends grew because they were bringing the gospel with them. Contrarywise, when Christians cut off each other, their circle of friends shrinks. With every person who offends them, whom they consequently cut off, their fellowship shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until in some cases there aren't really any friends left. And then even their remaining friends wonder when they'll commit whatever crime it takes for them to be cut off too. No, my friends, this passage is no justification for the kind of behavior that some would wrap in the cloak of Acts 15. You may find no excuse here for your pettiness. That's not the lesson of this passage. But there are some lessons that we may learn. First, one may learn that even the best of men are still but men. And Scripture is not bashful to point out that fact, as opposed to the sort of polished history that you might find in a piece of religious propaganda that never admits the weaknesses of its heroes, Scripture, frankly, gives them to us warts and all. Even the best of the saints, even the apostles. Nor does it, on the other end of the spectrum, share the cynicism common to some historians who are always more interested in the weaknesses than in the strengths of its subjects, delighting to show how all goodness is imperfect, so as to suggest, it seems, that there is no genuine goodness in the world at all. The Bible is perfectly honest concerning the fallen nature of its noblest characters, even as it summons the weakest of us to aspire to the perfect likeness of the perfect Lord. Which is why, second, we must take warning for ourselves from this. Here were two, as I've mentioned, two who had been through fire and deep water, pressed together by common enemies and stormy persecutions, bound by the common yoke of missionary service to their Lord, even to the point of death's doorstep and back. But now, over this important matter as it may be, it's surely not that difficult to resolve. Calvin makes it his opinion that this disagreement could have been disposed of with no difficulty. Over this, they burst their bonds with one another. If these two men, if these two men could be torn asunder, what 
what, what, what must that mean for you and for me? Here's Calvin again. When the dispute was so passionate and violent between these two holy men, who for many years had accustomed themselves to putting up with all circumstances, what will happen to us? whose desires have not been brought into obedience to God in that way and repeatedly run wanton without control. When a trivial, trivial occasion tore apart men who had conscientiously cultivated unity in the midst of so many hostile attacks, how easily Satan will have access to separate those whose desire to foster peace is either non-existent or cold. My brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it is an amazing thing. It really is that we enjoy the sort of unity that we do as a congregation. A group of fallen sinners gathered together under one roof even under the roof of the redeemed, may have a thousand opportunities to split from one another, to argue, to divide, and to cut off each other. You know that's what Satan would love to see in this church. He would love it. He doesn't like Christian unity one bit. And where he sees it, he will look for the weakest link. And he will attack precisely there. The unguarded heart in which he can begin to grow a bitter root and through which spread poison in a congregation Is that you? Are you the one through whom Satan has the best chance to introduce strife and division in Christ's church? Is that you? Are you the one through whom Satan has that chance, that that chink through which he can pass Here's Calvin again. We are warned by this example that unless the servants of Christ are intent on keeping a sharp lookout, many chinks are open to Satan by which he may steal in to disturb the harmony among them. Watch out for this. Please watch for this, dear flock, brothers and sisters. If Paul and Barnabas are subject to these passions of the flesh, so indeed are you and I, indeed all the more. What we have here as a congregation is just simply far too precious to sacrifice on the altar of your pettiness or of your fears or of your jealousies, or your pride, or your strengths. 
Yes, you heard me right, your strengths. Which brings me to the third point. Let us learn from this passage that it is often our strengths that are also precisely our greatest weaknesses. What was Paul, well, rather Barnabas, known for? Well, he was known for being a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's how he's described in Acts 11. But he was also known as an encourager. That's why they called him Barnabas, or son of encouragement, instead of his given name, Joseph. And Paul was known for his analytical certainties, his boldness, his singularity of purpose and passion. I think, had I the choice of working for Paul or being employed by Barnabas, I think I'd choose Barnabas, hands down. I get the feeling that Paul could sometimes be a little bit, well, hard to get along with. Not because he was mean-spirited or anything like that, but because he was so driven. And that's a good thing. That was Paul's strength, a singular, driven passion. And Barnabas' strength was encouraging. I rather suspect, I don't know this, but I rather suspect that what happened in Antioch that day was the collision of two great men's greatest strengths, which in this case also became their weaknesses. Barnabas, who was also, by the way, John Mark's cousin, if that throws a little bit of light into the situation, he was the soft-hearted one. He loved to come alongside the weak and lift them up. That's what endeared him, remember, to the church at Antioch. And so naturally, he wanted to give Mark another chance. Paul, on the other hand, gave little latitude to anything that might jeopardize the mission. Mark had failed once. He was not to be trusted again. Now get your hiking boots on, Barnabas. We're going on a trip. Oh, says Barnabas, but let's take Mark. He's come all the way here to Antioch. Surely he's repentant and ready. Nothing doing, says Paul. Back and forth, back and forth. Yes, no, yes, no. Until both were so entrenched in their convictions, born of their strengths, that their strengths also became their weaknesses. The church needs driven people, people of singular purpose and mission. Thank the Lord for people who share Paul's strength and drive. They're a blessing. But the church also needs people of compassion and empathy. Thank the Lord for the encouragers. Both those strengths, though, become weaknesses when neither yields to the other. Our virtues run to extremes, become vices. Mercy can become weakness and firmness, obstinacy, if we are not careful. It would be good for every one of us to come to terms with our strengths so that we can work hard on developing whatever balancing trait we need in our lives. Those of you who are task-driven will need to 
Work very hard on your people skills, learning to love others, to bring them gently along, like, by the way, the Lord does with you. And those of you who are more gentle and gracious, approaching people will need to develop an eye for the task. So that without diminishing the strength you have, you don't become a lopsided. Feeding one without developing the other does that. It makes us lopsided Christians and therefore more apt to enter into disputes with one another. Fourth, let us learn always to pursue reconciliation with one another, whatever the disputes or divisions that develop between us. This must be our default setting, so to speak, the way we are always inclined as Christians. Whether or not we're able finally to settle these disputes, some of them in this life, notwithstanding, always inclined to reconcile. Which, of course, is the very opposite of what we do naturally and what our flesh wants and craves to do. Why is it that grudge-keeping and nursing divisions and maintaining distances and our records of wrongs against others, why are, they so, why are those things so attractive to us? Well, for the very same reason that we're drawn to sexual immorality and to lying and to jealousy and to pride and to rebellion and to disobedience because sin is attractive, even to the redeemed. Let's just admit it. It is more satisfying to our flesh to hold an offense against another than to absorb it and move on. There's something inside us that loves to keep licking our wounds and keeping them raw instead of letting them heal. There's a sort of perverted attraction to living in continuous victim mode. Maybe it's the attention. Look at me. Look at how hurt I am. Look at how others have hurt me. Come feel sorry for me as I feel sorry for myself. Maybe it's anger. I refuse to put the offense behind me because I want to remain angry with you. They aren't happy, some people aren't. Unless they're unhappy. They seem to to thrive rather on on anger and spewing sarcasm on complaining and criticizing others. Christians, that's not you. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. You are not victims. That's not who you are. Now, you may be a victim of someone else's sin. I grant you that. But that's not your identity. You are a child of the king. You are a victor in Christ. 
And victors have very little time or interest in wallowing around in their own blood. And, Christians, you are forgiven. You who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been forgiven much, 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 can you not turn and forgive little? Barnabas and Paul were too busy bringing the gospel to others to do either of those, to to roll around in, in the blood of their own wounds or to refuse to forgive others. Too busy bringing the gospel. And when you get busy doing the same thing, when you make it your business to proclaim the gospel to others, to see that others come to know Jesus Christ As their Savior, too, you will find that the more involved and the busier you get in bringing the gospel to others, the more you set yourself to advancing the kingdom, the less time or even patience you'll have for maintaining grudges or even remembering the offenses. Proclaiming reconciliation between God and man, the likes of which we celebrate, especially at this time of year, you will find that a spirit of reconciliation grows in your own heart, too. That's what happened with Paul and Barnabas. By the time Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was once again speaking of Barnabas and himself as brothers in the same cause. And in his letter to Colossians, he's not averse at all to refer to Mark as the cousin of Barnabas. And speaking of Mark, he commends Mark wholeheartedly to the Christians in Colossae for their warm welcome. And by the time he writes to Philemon, he is calling Mark his fellow worker. And to Timothy, he issues this request from his captivity near the end of his life. He writes, Luke is alone with me. I mean, rather, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. See, disputes and divisions, they do not find a place of comfort. No aid, no help in the heart that is filled filled to the brim with the gospel of Jesus Christ and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. There's simply no room comfortable or otherwise, in a heart that swells with love for Jesus. Barriers between Christians are torn down in a heart that is filled with Jesus who has removed the greatest barrier of all. The one that divided you from God. And the more a person comes to terms with the grace by which he or she has been saved, From the consequences of sin, the more gracious that person becomes toward those, yes, even those who have sinned against them. Amen.